Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. This is your host, Tom Salemi. Thank you so much for joining us today. We, uh, we have a great talk. I got to speak with uh, Jeff Pardo, who's an old school device guy who uh, is based in the U.S., but uh, happens to work with uh, Gilda Healthcare, which is a European fund that closed on a, a fund just recently, a later stage in growth capital fund, uh, at uh, $285 million or $250 million euro, depending upon your currency. And uh, Jeff is in Cambridge, Mass., and he is going to be looking at medtech and digital health opportunities in the U.S. So uh, I talked to him a bit about what Guild is, Guild is looking for in, uh, in medtech, and more specifically, and more broadly, actually, why we're seeing uh, an appetite amongst European LPs for U.S. medtech. It's interesting. We've got Endeavor Vision raised their uh, fund earlier this year, now Guild Healthcare. We're not seeing sizable funds being raised on, uh, on this side of the Atlantic uh, for medtech. And uh, Jeff has an interesting take on why uh, Europeans or how Europeans view U.S. medtech and, and where they see the opportunity uh, we talked a bit also about um, digital health and whether it sort of uh, uh, shares some of the dynamics that MedTech did a decade ago in terms of uh, dollars flowing into the sector. So uh, Jeff is, uh, again, he's uh, been doing MedTech for a long time. He was with uh, Spray Venture Fund way back, uh, invested in one of my favorite deals, which we'll cover in the podcast and uh, just a good guy to talk to. And if you're uh, uh, an entrepreneur uh, or uh, an executive uh, looking for capital in this space, uh, you certainly should give Gilda a call. They're, uh, they're making deals. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jeff Pardo of Gilda Healthcare. Hey, Jeff Pardo, welcome to the podcast. Great, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you. It's uh, I'm uh, I'm obviously a fan of medtech and uh, one of my favorite deals. I don't know, maybe because Bill Gruber is such a nice guy was uh, was Interlace. I know you were an investor in that uh, at a time. Just seemed like such an old school medtech investment. You know, not a lot of money sold for a decent return. Uh, kind of what medtech maybe could and should be. Right, that's the way we. You know, you kind of draw it up like uh, Interlace, and that was a. A fun one to be involved with. Uh, it started when I was at Spray, out of our Spray offices. Actually, Bill and the team uh, were, were housed uh, right at, at Spray, and and we really, uh, you know, worked backwards in terms of identifying what the what the clinical and market need was, and coming up with the right technology. Uh, and lucky for us, I mean, I think in some ways it, it foreshadowed a lot of what you see in today's medtech environment is. Uh, or what has become more popular in investing in today's medtech environment, which is something that has a straightforward regulatory pathway. Uh, it was covered under existing codes and was really riding a trend in uh, in the OBGYN community to do more and more uh, office-based procedures ultimately. So, uh, yeah, things came together very nicely, um, but... Uh, um, but obviously the leadership of Bill was and identifying uh, Bill as the CEO was one of the most important things. Have you heard the term small ball in medtech investing and, and did that apply to, to, uh, uh, to interlace, you know, the investment of a, of a, of a small amount of capital for a, uh, a good return on investment, a good number of X's, but maybe not necessarily a huge payout. Yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting. I mean, that I think that that was for spray, not you know, not a huge amount of money, and and there was not a huge amount of capital that went into that relative to other 
companies, I mean, I'd say the return was pretty significant when you added in uh, uh, the earnouts. Uh, so it ended up being actually uh, a, a, a big return, I think, even for the later stage investors. Uh, and yeah, I mean, if you can if you can get away in this environment with investing a smaller amount of money and getting to the market and getting sales and getting acquired, I mean, that is obviously the you know the ideal. It is just more and more challenging to do that because of uh, the the regulatory hurdles, and even more important is you know getting through reimbursement and actually getting coverage. Uh, for your product, which is, with the exception of, you know, several very strategic sectors, it's becoming more and more the norm uh, that corporates are requiring. So uh, I think I think for, those, for that set of activities, you're better off having, you know, at the very least, a good syndicate around the table that's willing to fund the company uh, to, uh, through you know, some of those commercial milestones. Um, and uh, and oftentimes that requires a significant sum of money. I think that is different than what we saw maybe, you know, 10 years ago, where where the corporates were jumping in or willing to jump in a bit earlier. Um, I think reimbursement has become, you know, one of the key gating items, and I think the corporates have realized it. And and in many cases, not all, but in many cases, are really asking the companies to get through some of those milestones. So it's it's harder and harder. To, in my view, to think about small ball, I think if you're able to get to do it, that's terrific. But I, w- I would say having the syndicate and having the partners with deep enough pockets so that your hand isn't forced is uh, is probably a better strategy nowadays. And, and that is sort of where you're coming into into things now. You're you're of course now with uh, Gilda Healthcare, and uh, it's my understanding from from reading and, and, and watching that uh, you know Gilda is looking more at late-stage medtech opportunities. Why don't you tell us a bit about Yilda and, and what type of medtech companies it's looking to invest in? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. So so Gilda is uh, actually a fund that uh, started in Europe, in the Netherlands, uh, in the early 80s, really more as a, actually a buyout late-stage private equity fund uh, in the 80s. Uh, in the early 2000s, we we'd, uh, developed Gilda Healthcare Partners, and now that is completely separate from... Uh, from the Gilda buyout brand, so we're completely separate funds, separate investors, uh, separate uh, back office, uh, and we manage about 800 million uh, euro across four different um, healthcare technology funds. Uh, we are now fully invested in our healthcare fund three, uh, which was 150 million euro, and we uh, closed a healthcare fund uh, four, which is a 250 million euro fund. We look to invest uh, anywhere between 15 to 20 million dollars. A good upfront amount would, would be on the order of eight to 10 million. Of course, there's some uh, latitude with those amounts, but those are good ballpark figures. In the U.S., we really focus on medical device and digital health opportunities. And as you rightly point out, uh, we are doing more in, I'd say, the commercial or commercial-ready uh, area. And and, but that can also include companies that are commercial in Europe and going through a clinical uh, trial in the U.S., uh, of which there are many companies out there in that, uh, you know, in that uh, sweet spot. Um, and we, because we're, you know, really of European ancestry, I think we have particular expertise in helping companies that are either commercializing in Europe or looking to move into the U.S. now, given our U.S. presence. Um, 
So within within medical devices, uh, you know, all the classics apply here uh, in terms of a significant unmet need. You know, we don't want to risk stack things, so we we do like to see that the clinical and technology has really been worked out. Um, and uh, and that we're investing with an eye towards getting this company to uh, cash flow break even. And, you know, if they are clinical in the U.S., you know, that would mean having a pretty s- substantial European uh, base of sales uh, and, uh, and, some, and some clear milestones in the U.S. in terms of re- regulatory clinical pathway that we think will motivate a sale. And we tend to be pretty, you know, we call it exit-centric, which which is, is probably sounds pretty intuitive, but we we really like to, you know, do our homework in terms of what the needs are for the big uh, consolidators. And uh, so we spend a lot of time building our relationships there, uh, having regular dialogue. Um, while there is periodically that window of opportunity on the public markets, we we definitely see the more you know, and this is classic medtech investing. We we definitely see the acquirers as being really the probably the likely destination for for much of what we invest in. So we want to make sure that we're investing in things that could be uh, desirable for them. Um, I think that we've you know we spent a lot of time looking at our, our things in uh, respiratory in Fund Three. We did two respiratory deals, Inovalabs, which sold the ResMed, and also Vapotherm up in New Hampshire, which is doing quite well. Um, and we still see that as an ongoing area of, uh, of need, both in terms of, uh, of device-related products, but also in the digital health sp- space. You know, people with respiratory ail- ailments like COPD are certainly high-cost populations uh, to deal with and manage. And, uh, and that's a good example of the things that we are looking for. We're looking at things that, you know, cost the healthcare system a significant amount of money obviously represent significant uh, areas for clinical improvement and things that will really benefit the stakeholders across this, the spectrum, be it the patients, the providers, and the, and the payers. And it's the payers, you know, I referenced uh, reimbursement earlier, you know, making sure that it's something that can benefit the payers ultimately is, I think, the new uh, axis of uh, of uh, importance in medtech investing, whereas we used to think much more in terms of, you know, technology, clinical need, regulatory process. Uh, obviously, reimbursement has become uh, a very important thing to consider right from the get-go. So we look for things that kind of our mantra is better care at lower cost, and that's uh, I think uh, if there are technologies that can do that, either on the medtech side or on the digital health side, we'll, we'll be interested. And let's go to, to your fund. You mentioned it, you, re, you just closed in your fund. It's uh, 250 million, year, million euro. Um, this, this, I don't know if this is just anecdotal or observational on my, on my, from my point of view, but it seems like we're seeing, we, we, saw, we see Gilda, we see Endeavor Vision, we're seeing some sizable funds being raised in Europe with an eye toward at least putting some of that in medtech in the U.S., but at the same time, we're not seeing the same commitment from U.S.-based VCs or their limited partners. Is, what is the view of U.S. medtech uh, from, uh, from Europe's perspective? Is, it, is, it, uh, is there an opportunity that, that perhaps others are missing? Is it just well, how, are, how are you able to raise funds of this size when it seems like uh, local firms are having a, a little more difficulty? Well, it's a great it's a great question, and I think some of that speaks to the U.S. environment uh, within healthcare venture capital. I mean, I, I think unfortunately, 
U.S. LPs have had, uh, you know, I guess they would argue that the returns maybe haven't been there as much uh, in that, and you've seen some rotation by U.S. LPs uh, out of that out of that segment. Um, I think we've, you know, we, and, and I think part of that is a vestige of a lot of money going in into, in, in say, in the period of 2001 to 2008 into sectors which ended up being much more difficult. So you saw a handful of very noteworthy exits in, for example, Spine, and all of a sudden you had a rush, a rush of capital to Spine. Well, very few of those companies ended up being successful, and in fact, a lot of the big corporates were were burned by some of those acquisitions, which really slowed down activity. But that had a very, very big impact on uh, on the returns of the funds that invested a lot of money in those sectors. Obesity would be another one. So you've seen, you know, I think in that period of 2001 to 2008, uh, a rush of capital into certain segments where the returns ultimately didn't materialize. Now, for, you know, probably luckily, out of luck more than anything else, Gilda was really not part of that era. So we had a chance to start fresh from our fund three. We recognized that, in fact, there were a lot of companies that were funded during that era that uh, were able to survive, uh, produce good clinical data, actually get out on, out on the market. And I think that was a theme that resonated with our investors in Fund 3. We ended up having success uh, over the course of uh, Fund 3 with, with those investments and really demonstrating that this model of, uh, of uh, taking companies where a lot of the risk had been reduced, where you could get in at uh, an appropriate valuation and, and drive a return for your investors works. The dynamics of medtech haven't disappeared. I mean, while you could argue maybe over how, how the money was spent in that, in that 2001 to 2008 period, the overarching dynamics are still there. The big companies need new products uh, in order to uh, drive their growth. Uh, the uh, entrepreneurial activity and the activity around uh, unmet clinical needs is still, is still there, so there's still uh, plenty of deal flow. Um, it's just that we, you know we need to be a little bit smarter, I think, as investors um, in really targeting the areas which uh, which I think uh, really resonate with the three stakeholders that I mentioned: the patients, providers, and payers, um, and uh, and also make sure we're targeting areas that ultimately make sense to the uh, to the, to the acquirers. Um, so, uh, you know, I think some of this is motherhood and apple pie that I'm saying, but it's. But it's it's definitely you know if you can be pretty disciplined in how you invest, um, I, I think there's a, a recipe for success here, and I think uh, I, I think Gilda because it was able to start fresh in in the U.S. Although we'd done some investments in the U.S. prior to Fund Three, but with Fund Three was our first major for, foray into the U.S. Um, and we weren't really burdened with some of the you know maybe some of the history. Of um, that USLPs had experienced in uh, medtech and, and RLPs, I think have been able to benefit from, you know, a lot of the a, a lot of the of the work and and uh, investment that um, that the US medtech companies have have put in you mm -hmm. know over the preceding years. That's a great point. I mean, you could almost <clears throat> make an argument that USLPs are missing an opportunity that that the, the, they're letting the fatigue and the hangover sort of uh, uh, keep them from benefiting. Do you, though, as a, as a firm, are you benefiting or are you investing more in the companies that have emerged as the, the winners or the likely winners in those sectors that had been perhaps overfunded five or ten years ago? 
or are you are you finding companies or entrepreneurs that have learned lessons from that period that are creating better companies, newer companies, and better companies? Uh, again, with based upon the experience of what the sector went through uh, ten years ago. Yeah, we we will. Yeah, it's an interesting question. It's it's a mix, honestly. I mean, we we certainly see companies. In fact, we're looking at one right now, which has had a lot of capital invested in over the years, um, has had a migration in its focus from a certain you know blockbuster area to another uh, blockbuster area. And so, in uh, you know, without getting into any of the specifics, that is definitely an example of a company which has learned a lot over the past, say, ten years. Um, and we're able to really benefit from uh, the lessons learned, and I think invest at a moment in time now, which is, you know, if we if we do end up doing this deal, we would obviously come to the conclusion that this is the right time to to do the investment. So I think we we do have the benefit of seeing companies that have been able to make, you know, keep uh, their funding and to keep progressing. And really, you know, whether it's sharpening their focus on, in the clinical indication, whether it's actually making it through a regulatory process, whether it's uh, been a- being able to build up uh, a, a sales ramp in Europe that looks particularly attractive, all those things we can take advantage of. But I'd say it's a mix because we also see a lot of companies that, you know, are, are just new companies. They're, they may be established entrepreneurs, and we certainly look for that. Um, uh, but there, there are companies that um, that have been established that are able to, you know, amass a, a, a clinical data set, get to a regulatory approval, and come to us. But there, you know, wouldn't fall into that category of sort of the the, the block of companies that were invested in in, in that in that 2001 to 2008 time period. But nonetheless, I think I think everybody has adapted to the new environment. We rarely see people coming in now without a solid, you know, reimbursement plan. Or if they don't have one, you know, certainly we would demand one before we invest or they, you know, they, they, they're able to, uh, to come up with one. So I think entrepreneurs have adapted to the current, uh, the, you know, the current env- environment. Um, all, we, all entrepreneurs need to know are the rules, right? It's when you don't know the rules that, that you really get stuck. Uh, entrepreneurs adapt very quickly once uh, the rules are laid out and, uh, and I think we are seeing a little bit more, clar- certainly more clarity on the regulatory side. Uh, reimbursement, I would wish for more clarity, more things that would promote um, uh, innovation in, in our segment. Uh, I think you're starting to see some forays into that where there are bridges to, to, uh, to, to coverage uh, by the payers. Uh, but that is still, you know, the one thing that I think is holding back a lot of new uh, companies from uh, from forming. So it's a long-winded answer, but in essence, it's a mix, and we certainly look for companies that, you know, that uh, I think all entrepreneurs are learning the lessons of the past uh, 10, 15 years, and some we're able to see some companies which have been able to survive that uh, period, which look particularly attractive now, and others we see new companies that, that have simply, um, you know, are, are new but have certainly learned from uh, from what's happened in our environment. Hi, everybody. Tom here. Just want to take a quick break to ask you to go to medtechconference.com. Sign up for the MedTech Talk newsletter. You will get future podcasts like this one sent to you, right to your inbox, as well as our original content and our video reports from our own events and elsewhere in the MedTech world. So go to medtechconference.com. 
please sign up for the MedTech Talk newsletter and enjoy the content that will come your way. Now back to this conversation with Jeff Pardo of Gilda. You mentioned that you're also looking at uh, digital health companies, and I'd like to hear about what kind. But I guess the question I would have is you were you were involved in MedTech uh, during that period. You mentioned Spray, you were with Cardinal, you were with Facet Solutions. Do you see any parallels between digital health investments today and MedTech 10 years ago where you are seeing so much money going into so many Me Too yeah. kind of companies? Yeah, yeah. And, and how do you avoid uh, what happened to the MedTech investors from, from 10 years ago? Yeah, well, and you and you can even look within each segment, right? It seems like we, you know, sometimes history just continues to repeat itself. Uh, when I when I came into Cardinal in two thousand one, we actually there was quite a little, you know, it wasn't called digital health then, but healthcare IT boom at the moment, um, and and quite, and a lot of money was, you know, was lost during that uh, period too. I think we called it um, e health at the time. That was uh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, um, and uh, but no, absolutely. I think you know p- part of what is difficult in our sector sometimes is the group think that occurs, and and you know I know entrepreneurs may refer to it as uh, like lemming behavior, and I think you really have to stay disciplined. I think that's something we spend a lot of time at Gilda is not getting caught up in you know in in uh, in the group think, really making sure we evaluate each company on its own uh, merits. We don't tend to do sort of big trend investing or anything like that. Um, so, so I think it's a it's a very disciplined uh, culture within the firm. Um, uh, I, I, but I I think and as a result, we really haven't uh, d- uh, done any U.S. digital health deals in the past couple of years, precisely because of what you mentioned. I think it was a very frothy period, um, and I think a lot of people were getting into the sector, driving up. Uh, valuations, and we were we were quite careful. On the flip side, we did make a European investment in a digital health company called Kinec, and the idea is about doing it in Europe is in fact that the frothiness wasn't there. We could we found a company with a very slick uh, technology uh, at a reasonable valuation that we think can find uh, not only growth opportunities in Europe, but in fact can move uh, move to the U.S. and find a very nice niche there. So, so we took a little bit different approach uh, in that regard. Now, we have seen some pullback in the U.S. in terms of valuations, really starting with the public market uh, in de- digital health, and that uh, is starting to trickle through to the private company landscape. So actually, we think that the next two to three years, there's going to be some opportunities within digital health. But I, I think we, you, know, you can't ever get carried away with 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 uh, with valuation and with um, you know everything moves more slowly in healthcare, right? So you, I think you have to make sure that in digital health, it's not going to be any different. It's not going to be software, uh, consumer-based software. It's it's going to take time. The sales cycles are going to be long, and so you got to make sure that these companies are positioned uh, from a um, capitalization standpoint, um, but also from a valuation standpoint to raise. M- money over a period of time so that they can stay capitalized and stay, um, you know, stay, stay focused. So that's, uh, you know, that's a little bit of our, of our approach. I, I, so I think, yes, we tend to repeat these cycles every five to 10 years. And I think making sure that you don't get caught up in, in the group think of our, of our business is, uh, is particularly important. 
And you mentioned the, the potential crossover of that company to, to the U.S. D- does Gilda need to invest in companies that have some sort of presence or some sort of activity on either uh, on, on, in both Europe and the U.S. Uh, in medtech or in digital? You know, no. The, answer, the short answer is no. However, I think, you know, we always look to, to differentiate ourselves and to provide the most value for our companies. And a very uh, easy one for us to, to, uh, to provide is that expertise in the European markets. And then for European companies looking to come here, some expertise in the U.S. Um, market, be it, you know, from a clinical, regulatory, or commercial standpoint. Um, so it is something we have to offer companies, and that's you know we, a lot of times we're we're getting introduced to companies where that is a focus because of because of our expertise. However, we also invest in companies that um, you know that really have a laser focus on a particular market, and uh, and and they're not looking to go over to, uh, to Europe. Uh, so yeah, uh, hopefully that answers that. But it, it, it's not a, it's not a prerequisite. Sure. What is your you mentioned trying to understand what the corporates want. And you also talked about, you know, sort of what the payers are willing to, to pay for. What is the process like to understand the appetite of the, of the corporates? And how do you sort of um, record that or, 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 uh, uh, dem- or display that? Do, do, do you literally have some sort of spreadsheet or some whiteboard or somewhere, somewhere where, you know, this company is looking there, that company is looking there, and you're, and you're very sort of clinical about it? Or is it more of a a feel thing at Gilda where you, you've, you've done your interviews, you've, you've had your meetings and you kind of know what, what each uh, strategic is really looking for. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd say it's, a, it's a little bit of both for sure. Uh, I mean, we, we tend to be pr- pretty uh, analytical in the way we do things. So we certainly, when we get together as a partnership, uh, you know, the, the, we feel like we have pretty good, uh, documentation over, you know, what what we think the strategies are for the major uh, corporates. But we're in enough informal dialogue with the corporates that, you know, not everything is is captured. And so then on an individual basis, there's a bit of feel and a bit of just the experiential uh, knowledge that comes into play. But as a partnership, you know, we, we are constantly discussing kind of, you know, where we think different products will fit uh, who the you know, there can be a turnover at the big companies, which really impacts uh, the direction of different um, strategic programs. So we we uh, you know we try to stay on top of that and know who's who is where and who the key decision makers are, and that's probably as important as as anything else. Um, but yes, it's it's a mix. I mean, w- w- the firm is Dutch after all, which means that it's uh, pretty <laughs> process oriented <laughs> and uh, and and regimented in in how it. Looks no foosball tables there I at mean, the home office. Uh, what's that? I said no foosball tables there at uh, in HQ. <laughs> no, 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 no. But it's a very you know it's a very rigorous, disciplined environment, which is great, uh, and I think it's. Uh, and I think that's really, you know, one of the things that separates us is the discipline we, we bring to investing. Um, um, but at the same time, you know, experience and relationships and the informal communication that, that happens as a result of that, is, you know, always plays uh, a major role. Are you able to, going again to the payer's point, are you able to sort of apply that same uh, tactic or that same approach to, understanding what they they might pay for or do you feel that it's the decisions really are kind of a case by case company by company product by product sort of uh, sort of decision process 
Well, that's a great question. I think that is, you know, that is something we try to do. Uh, I'd say I will tell you that it is harder. I mean, there is a playbook that's well known to all the reimbursement consultants and the companies out there as to what you need to do to get reimbursement. Uh, my own experience has told me that there's a lot of variety in that, and and there's not, you know, the FDA. Uh, while you can, you know, argue over, you know, how conservative they become or the, how the pendulum swings with the FDA, there are mandates that are set out and timelines that uh, uh, that they're really obligated to follow. And to me, that is the harder thing with the payers. So you can you can do the interviews with payers. You can get you know some sense uh, of of what they're looking for. But ultimately, the hardest thing to predict uh, with a payer is the timeline, which is, where you can get approval. And of course, that translates into burn rate for a company. It turns it translates into risk mitigation for a, for a potential acquirer or for how attractive it looks like uh, on the on the public market. Um, so, so those those are the hardest things to glean from any pair. And I'm I'm afraid just in the current landscape. I, and I, I would love to hear from other people on this subject. But my experience is that it is very hard to pin down a pair in terms of a timeline. It, it really it really depends. It is case by case, um, and it is one of the more difficult things in our business right now. What I do like seeing are things like the um, Allegheny Health Services and Highmark have a collaboration where uh, they are sponsoring uh, coverage for uh, devices uh, over a period of time in which they'll pay for the device. You have to agree to do also do, you know, clinically study that device uh, with them. Uh, but that is a, a program which does give more clarity. I think Medicare is offering, uh, you know, similar type programs, and I think other payers are are beginning to to um, uh, to offer, you know, bridges to coverage as well. My hope is that that does provide that interim, you know, validation for a company. I think that the device companies would all submit to being to being studied if they could get coverage over that period of time. I think, you know, we all believe in what we've invested in and they can, they can benefit the stakeholders at this point. And, uh, and, but, but for the, for the burden to fall all to the investors, I think has been a difficult proposition because of the, you know, uncertainty over, you know, coverage at the end of the day. So, so yeah, I think, uh, I, I would love it if there was more transparency, uh, from the payers, but I think that has been that has been a challenge. Uh, my hope is that there are programs underway which allow for more collaboration between manufacturers and and uh, and payers. It, it is a different dynamic. I mean, do you, with the with the strategics, they want to buy that new car. They want the they want the product in their their salespeople's sales bag. Do the payers sort of have a natural reluctance to even talk about new technology because there's an automatic assumption it's just going to cost more money? Uh, I think that has been a lot of what uh, payers have felt. And I think that, you know, I think there's a lack of conviction, but this is stemming back now m- many years, a mm-hmm. lack of conviction that new technology is going to lower their costs. I mean, I think that is, you know, certainly been their point of view. Um, but I think, and like I said, I think entrepreneurs have already gotten that message, you know, years ago. Uh, most of what we see today has a pretty strong uh, health economic uh, value proposition, and my fear is that the payers, by having sort of this very reactionary uh, uh, approach to new technology, are actually missing out on things that could have 
uh, a, a very nice impact to their bottom lines. Um, you know, it, it's really our, our mission is at Gilda, but I would argue, you know, many of the entrepreneurs are out there not just trying to create new widgets uh, that uh, cost a lot of money and improve health. I think everybody right now is trying to find things that can ultimately reduce that cost of care. Um, and so I think the time is ripe to have that uh, collaboration with payers, but it's, it's, it's difficult. There's, you know, I would liken it a little bit to, uh, you know, 10 years ago, when you would approach a corporate about uh, about a potential investment, there was a little bit of tension. I think the corporates felt like, uh, well, why, why am I going to speak favorably about a particular company uh, and bid up the price on something uh, on myself? There wasn't, you know, sort of the healthy ecosystem that has existed, you know, for a long time. I think in pharma, and I'd say increasingly in the med tech world. Um, I don't think we're there yet with the payers where we've created that same ecosystem. And I think it's incumbent not just on the payers, but on the device manufacturers, on investors like uh, like Gilda and others to really foster that sort of collaboration with the payers so that they know that actually we're, we're aiming for the same thing that they are. We, we want uh, devices out there that are really going to improve, you know, the, and strip costs out of the system because you know, this cost curve has not, you know, been sustainable. Absolutely. Great thoughts. So just final question and a real simple one. Uh, you've got money to invest. If I'm a CEO, what's, what's the best way of, uh, of getting a meeting with you? Well, I mean, I, we're pretty receptive and, and I think re- responsive. Um, but certainly, you know, it always helps um, uh, to, to you know, reach out with an introduction to someone we've worked with in the past. And then that's, uh, you know, always is, uh, is nice to see. But, uh, you know, frankly, if you really hit on this theme of better care at lower cost uh, and you have the clinical data or the commercial the commercial uh, uh, traction to really demonstrate that, I, I don't think it'll be hard to get a meeting with us. We, we tend to be pretty, um, you know, pretty responsive to um, to everybody that comes to us. So, um, so yeah, I think that th- those are the two best ways. Excellent. Well, you were very responsive to putting this interview together. I'm, I'm grateful for you taking a few minutes to talk with us. Well, great. Well, thanks so much, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks, Jeff Pardo, for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. Uh, very happy to have uh, Gilda investing in U.S. MedTech and MedTech broadly, and also digital health. Uh, we've got our, our digital health interests as well, including the upcoming Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, which will be uh, held on November 2nd in Boston. So uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. Hope you will sign up for the MedTech Talk newsletter. Go to medtechconference.com or healthogy.com. That's the uh, word health, followed by the letters egy.com. Healthogy is a company that puts on the MedTech Conference, puts on Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, and puts on the Ophthalmology Innovation Summits as well. So I hope you will uh, visit us at healthogy.com. Enjoy our content from across healthcare. And of course, join us next week for another tale of innovation on MedTech Talk.